Has anyone ever told you not to stare directly into the sun before? I hope they have because it's actually good advice. Uh, doing so can hurt your eyes, right? Have you ever been in a really dark room and then someone just flashes the lights on you? How bad it hurts, right? You almost have to shun the light. It just takes you a while to adjust. There's this interesting thing about light. I, I call it one of the, the world's most greatest ironies that depending on the context, light can actually have a blinding effect. Light can blind you. And I say that that's sort of this natural poetic irony because light is supposed to do the exact opposite. Right? The purpose of light is to illuminate. The purpose of light is to give us the ability to see things. So isn't it kind of interesting that the very thing that prevents you from being blind is capable of blinding you. As a matter of fact, this irony has always been seen as so poetic that it's really become a very famous metaphor in pop culture. Bruce Springsteen wrote a famous song in 1973 called Blinded by the Lights. And then 47 years later, there was another hit song. It was even played at the Super Bowl by an artist named The Weeknd called Blinding Lights. Where in the chorus, again, he says, I'm blinded by the lights. The light has blinded me. Another really famous quote that sometimes people will talk about is in probably the most highest grossing Batman film ever made, The Dark Knight Rises. The movie's villain, Bane, uh, what makes him so intimidating for Batman is he takes away what is typically Batman's greatest strength, which is his ability to fight in the dark. And Bane beats him up in the dark, and then tell, before he does so, he tells them, I was raised in the dark just like you were. I'm very comfortable in the dark. And he even tells them, to me, the light of day is blinding, blinded by the lights. It's a poetic, interesting metaphor. But I submit to you that it was not Bruce Springsteen or The Weeknd or Christopher Nolan who made this natural irony famous, but it, that honor belongs to another, none other than our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Would you open your Bibles to John chapter 9, please? John chapter 9, so we can see Jesus' version of blinded by the lights. We are going to finish John chapter 9 this morning. We're going to begin in verse 35, where we left off. I would invite you, when you were there, to stand for the reading of God's word. John chapter 9, verses 35 through 41, Thus saith the Lord, Jesus heard that they had cast him out and had found him and said to him, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Last week we left off with our former blind man being excommunicated from his church, excommunicated from the synagogue. And so Jesus comes and finds him. And the text is very clear that they didn't just run into each other. Jesus heard this and went looking for him. Which before we even dive into the sermon, can I just say what a sweet metaphor that is for us? 
that whenever men wrong you, including clergy, Jesus does not forsake you. He draws near to you. God just loves to draw near to us in our times of need and times of hurt. I was just talking with Bonnie before service. She was mentioning how she recently fell and hit her head pretty good and it was obviously not a fun situation, but she mentioned how in the midst of all this, it's just been amazing at how she's just seen and felt God has been giving her grace and sustaining her. And so even in this valley, God came and found her and drew near to her. That's what Jesus does when we get hurt. He draws near to us. This man was wrongly excommunicated and injustice happened to him and so Jesus came and found him. And we know the primary reason Jesus goes and finds him is because Jesus is ready to get this guy over the hill. This guy's ready to get over the hump. Jesus sees in this man a harvest ripe for picking. And why do I say that? Because Jesus knows that all this man knows about him up to this point is that Jesus is a miracle-working prophet. Remember a couple weeks ago, the Pharisees asked this man, who do, you, who do you think he is? And he says, a prophet. Which is a high honor, but we know Jesus is a lot more than just a prophet. And that's all this guy thinks he is. He's just a prophet. And yet, he was willing to lose everything for him. This man was willing to lose everything that he had at his fingertips for Jesus the prophet. How much more might he be willing to lose for Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man? Jesus says, if this guy's willing to lose all this for the lesser version of me, he's ready to embrace the fullness of who I am. And there's a lesson in that for us too. Right? If this man was losing to lose so much for Jesus the prophet, how much more should we be willing to suffer for Christ? Right? Because in our church, Christ is a prophet, but he's much more than that. He's our Savior. He's our God. How much more should we love Him and be willing to lose for Him? As a matter of fact, Jesus does finally reveal to this healed man much more of who He is. He is not just a prophet. And when He does this, you see just how overwhelmed this man is. Right? Look at verses. Let's read that, that whole section again. Verses 35 through 38. Jesus heard that they cast him out, and having found him, said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Right? The healed man has never seen Jesus before this moment. He's been with Jesus, but he was blind. He's now seeing Jesus physically for the first time. And ironically, he's also now seeing Jesus spiritually for the first time as well. This is the first time he sees Jesus in every sense of the word. Because Jesus reveals himself, the Son of Man is the very person talking to you. Now it is interesting that Jesus chose to use the term Son of Man rather than Son of God. When Son of God has been the primary term that Jesus has been identifying with throughout the Gospel of John. But I think there's a reason for that. I think Jesus is being very clever here because the passage that we're looking at is primarily one where Jesus is speaking about judgment and condemnation. All right, we're going to get to that in a minute. And when someone hears the term son of man in first century Jewish context, authority, justice, judgment, that's what comes to their mind. Uh, because the, this, we don't have to go over this again. We went over it earlier in the book when Jesus first introduced himself as the Son of Man. But just as a refresher, that term comes from a prophecy in the book of Daniel where the, the Son of Man was prophesied to ascend into heaven and sit at God's right hand. 
And that, I, that, that imagery of sitting at the right hand of God was a metaphor for power, for authority, for kingship, right? So the Son of Man was thought to be the king, the great king, the authoritative one. And so it makes sense that Jesus would introduce himself as the Son of Man here because he's about to talk about his role in judgment. Although, not only is the Son of Man and judgment connected, but the Son of Man and the Son of God are very much connected too. So he's really saying the same thing, Son of Man, Son of God. Uh, we actually saw this earlier in the book when all three of these things were present. Right? I accidentally put John 9, but that should be John 4, I believe. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear and his voice can come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So you see even here in this text, this idea of the Son of God and the Son of Man being connected, and then the Son of Man being connected to this idea of judgment. Christ comes for judgment. And so how does this former blind man respond? Right? He see, he's told, Jesus tells him that he is the Son of Man, and how does he respond? Well, he does the two things that every single person should do whenever they encounter Christ. He believes in Jesus and he worships Jesus. That's what everyone should do. He believes in Jesus and he worships Jesus. But what I found so interesting about this passage as I was studying, and I was thinking, this is probably where the meat is, right? I mean, here we have a guy accepting Christ and then believing in him, so we should probably talk about faith and worship of Jesus. But that's really not the focus of the text. Jesus actually has a different thing in mind, which he turns to in verses 40 through 41. Let's read those together. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. This is the heart of the passage. All of this leading up to it was for this moment. So the heart of the passage here is actually the interaction, not Jesus with the blind man, but Jesus with the Pharisees. And so the heart of the matter for Jesus is he's trying to teach us and the Pharisees here primarily that many people are going to be blinded by his light. Jesus is the light of the world. So yes, he did come to illuminate the darkness. But the problem is that within that dark world are people who hate his light. So as he comes in to illuminate the darkness, there are people who are going to be blinded by it. Like when you're in a dark room and someone flashes the light on, they hate it. It hurts them. They're blinded by his light. Now, admittedly, Jesus' metaphor is very confusing. It's very counter... Uh, it, it kind of goes against the way we typically see light and dark metaphors being used, not just in John, but throughout the Bible. So I think it'd be really helpful for us to just really unpack it as specifically as we can, right? So the first confusion that sometimes people have is a broad one where it's, people are confused because Jesus explicitly said why he came into the world. And he says, I came into the world for judgment. But this confuses people because we learned in John chapter 3, Jesus says, I did not come into the world for judgment. Right? Look at what he says in John 3, 16 and 17. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So how do we make sense of this? No, God did not send Jesus into the world to condemn the world. And then here Jesus is in John chapter 9, for judgment I came. I came for judgment, right? How do we put these pieces together? Well, I think the tension can be resolved when we see that Jesus is speaking about what theologians call an accidental purpose. Or a more fancy technical term is a derivative purpose. Which in layman's terms means that the primary reason Jesus came into the world was for revelation and salvation. He came to illuminate and to save. That's why Jesus came. However, whenever light comes into a sinful world, there's inevitable secondary consequences that will follow. Namely, that those who hate the light will reject it, and their judgment will be increased, and the condemnation that is already over them will be now exposed. So while Jesus did come primarily to save and not to condemn, there is an inevitable judgment that comes whenever salvation enters the world. And by the way, I'm not just playing fast and loose with the text. Right after John 3, 16 and 17, Jesus goes on to talk about how he came for judgment, right? The very next verses, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But who, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So even in the very passage where we're told Jesus didn't come into the world to judge the world, but to save it, the very next verse is Jesus saying, here's the judgment that I brought. Here's the judgment that my light has brought into the world. So the primary purpose was for illumination and salvation. But there was a secondary purpose, an inevitable consequence of the light, which blinds people. And it increases their judgment and it exposes their condemnation. And that's what Jesus is trying to tell the Pharisees. I came and you hated my light, so what has my light done? It's blinded you, it's increased your judgment, and it's now made manifest to the whole world, which was once in darkness, that you are not friends of God. You are already condemned. In other words, Jesus is saying he came into the world, but that's a two-sided coin. The face of the coin is for salvation, but the back end of the coin is inevitably going to bring judgment to those who reject it. I, like, look at verse 39. We see this dual-sided coin. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see. So there's the primary purpose, to give light to the blind. But what's inevitably going to happen on the other side of the coin? And those who see may become blind. It's this dual-sided coin. I came to give light to the blind, but for some people, that light is going to be like staring directly at the sun. It's going to hurt. It's going to blind them. And so really what Jesus is culminating in here is we're finally seeing what we've kind of known already, which is that when he healed this blind man, he did so as a grand uh, a spiritual metaphor. That the primary purpose he came was to find people who were blind and give them sight. But there is an accidental cause to this, which he ends the chapter on, that those who already see shall be made, made blind. But this now raises up a next, the next question. Now we sort of have that settled. The question that I'm asking then is, who are the seeing ones? Right? Isn't sight good? 
Like, who do you want to be? The, the blind person or the person who can see? Right? But in this text, apparently you want to be the blind person. You don't want to be the seeing one because the seeing one gets blinded. So who are the seeing ones? And, 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 and isn't that kind of like bad theology? Because I thought that the Bible taught that we're all spiritually blind, that there are no seeing ones, right? So isn't this kind of confusing? And if someone is already seeing, why would Jesus want to blind them? Like if he takes blind people and he gives them sight, if you've got these other people who already have sight, now we're winning. Why, why does he blind them, right? So this is kind of confusing how Jesus is using the metaphor. So let's break it down. Verses 40 through 41. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. So I think that this event of Jesus coming and finding this man, it must have happened pretty quickly after the excommunication. It must have been pretty fresh because the Pharisees are still lingering around, eavesdropping on their conversation. So they hear Jesus talking about giving sight to the blind man and making those who see. And so they say, are you, are you talking about us? Right? That, that, that old song, you think this song is, you're so vain, you think this song is about you. But it actually is. Jesus' song is about them. Yes, I am talking about you and everyone like you. He is talking about the Pharisees as those who see who are then made blind. The Pharisees are among the people who were able to see and then Christ came and they were blinded by the light. But so here's the key to Jesus' metaphor. He doesn't really believe the Pharisees could see. I understand he uses that metaphor, but Jesus doesn't actually think that. Jesus is just merely going along with their arrogance. Okay, that's the key to the metaphor. In other words, they think they can see. They can't, but they think they're the seers. So Jesus just goes with that to make the point, right? So, so what does seeing mean? In a broad sense, it means to know God and to know the way of salvation. That's what it means to see. And the Pharisees thought they already had that. We already know God. We already, we've got the law and we're obeying it and that's how we're going to be saved. So they already had salvation. They already had God. What do they need Jesus for? That's their perspective. Jesus doesn't offer us anything we don't already have. He doesn't offer us revelation. We're the teachers of the law. He doesn't offer us salvation. We're obeyers of the law. So they think they see. They think they've got God. They think they've got salvation. They think that they can see it all. So Jesus just goes with that and says, Oh, you're the seers then. Okay, I'm going to blind you. He's going along with their arrogance. I think that's, we get that, hinted at in verse 41, right? Because Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see. I think he's hinting at there, you don't really see. But you say you're the seers. You say you're the ones who can see, so I'm going to blind you. He's just going along with their arrogance. They don't actually see. But they say they're the seers. And so that's why I said, ironically, the reason this metaphor is confusing is because this is one of the few times in all of the Bible where being blind is good. Right? Because what did Jesus just say in that verse? If you were blind, then you would have no guilt. Blindness is your path to forgiveness. Vision is your path to condemnation. In this text, you want to be blind. If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Jesus' light brings judgment and it exposes those who thought they could see as actually being blind. It increases their accountability 
as they show hostility to the clearest revelation that God has ever given someone. And so how do we, let's, now that we've sort of broken it all down, how do we make sense of the metaphor? I, this is essentially what Jesus is trying to teach us. That those who know they need Jesus are the ones who will be given true sight. Those who think they don't need Jesus will be exposed as unbelievers and will be judged more severely. This is, metaphorically, the blinding. This is what it means to blind them with his light. Although, strictly speaking, the blindness actually comes from us, from people. It doesn't come from the light. Because the same light that illuminates someone can also blind another person. So the problem is not in the light. right? The problem is in the objects receiving the light. So there's a sense in which they are blinding themselves. But because Jesus is the one who brought the light to them, he can, in a certain sense, say, I'm the one who has blinded you. We talked a little, about, a little bit about that at Sunday school today. Uh, if, if you're still confused, I, I think that Jesus' metaphor here is very similar to a little bit more clear one and a much more popular one he used in a different gospel. Jesus said this in Mark chapter 2. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he, speaking of Jesus, was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. It's the same message. It's a different metaphor. It's the same message, right? It would be wrong to conclude from this metaphor that Jesus thinks the Pharisees are actually righteous. Like Jesus is actually saying, you guys are good. You guys are perfect. You don't need me. They're sinners and they need him, but he's just using their arrogance to make a point. Oh, you guys are, you're not sinners. You're fine. You're healthy. These are the sinners and you're not. Okay, that's fine then. I guess you have no need of me because I'm a spiritual physician. I'm a doctor. I heal people. So if you don't need healing, then I didn't come for you. He's not trying to imply that they actually don't need healing. He's going along with their arrogance. Oh, you're the righteous ones? Okay, then that's why I don't meet with you. Because I meet with sick people. I'm a doctor. I meet with blind people. I give vision. So if you're healthy and if you can see, then you have no need of me. They're very, very similar in their message here. And so let us summarize and apply this metaphor of giving sight to the blind and blinding those with sight. If I had to sort of summarize what our passage is all about today, I would, I would put it this way. That you must recognize your sinful condition before coming to Christ. The blind man has been humbled. He's already there. The Pharisees need to get there. Jesus needs the Pharisees to see you don't actually see you're actually blinder than this guy and you will never have advantage of me until you recognize that. A sick person will never find benefit in a doctor until they know that they're sick. As long as you think you're healthy, as long as you think you can see, then the physician, the one who gives sight, will never be a benefit to you. Jesus is trying to humble the Pharisees and admit we are blind to help us to see Jesus. You have to recognize your sinful condition before coming to Christ. In other words, think about it this way. There are lots of wrong reasons to come to Christ. There are bad reasons to come to Christ. The rich young ruler, you remember that famous story? He came to Christ. He said, I want to be a disciple. I want to follow you. And Jesus sent him away. 
Jesus says in the Gospels, don't come to me if you're not willing to X, Y, and Z. There are bad reasons to come to Christ. The right way to come to Christ is in humility. The right way to come to Christ is by first recognizing that you are a sinner. You must come recognizing that you're lost, that you're blind, and that you're dead without him. Don't come to Christ just because he's a wise teacher. He is that. And that's true, but that's not why we come. Don't come to Christ because you think he will improve your life. I think he will improve your life. But that's not why we come. When we realize that we are sinners under the wrath of God, then we will come to Christ for one reason and one reason only. The forgiveness of sins. You come to Christ in humility and ask him to forgive you of your sins. Again, the Pharisees didn't think they needed Christ. They were prideful and they believed that we are sufficient in and of ourselves to be accepted by God. The healed blind man, however, came to Christ in humility, recognizing his need for the Son of Man to have mercy on him on Judgment Day. Again, his physical healing is a metaphor for the spiritual realm. He knew that he was blind, and he knew Jesus alone could give him sight. And this is how we all must come to Christ. We must know that you're blind, and that he is the only one who can give you spiritual vision. And not only is this the primary takeaway for us, but I think it has a really helpful application in our lives as well, specifically as it pertains to evangelism. This message here in John 9, that we must recognize our sin before coming to Christ, has a huge impact on how we share the gospel with others. And what it means is that when we share the gospel, we have to do the uncomfortable thing of confronting people's sin. Now, this does not mean that there's no room for tact or discernment or charity or grace or all the other fruits of the Spirit. I, I'm not saying that you just have to go in and scream at people and tell them how off they are then leave. There's tactful ways to do this. As a matter of fact, what I like to say is I want to present myself in such a way that even if they believe my message, they'll still want to come to me with what to do. So like, you could be such a jerk in evangelism that they might even think you're right, but then they'll just go find a different Christian to help them because they don't want to be friends with you, right? So we still want to be tactful and gracious in how we go about this, but there's, there's just no getting around the fact that we cannot share the gospel rightly if we're not willing to confront the person in front of us as a sinner. So this means that going around telling people that God loves them, that's not the gospel. That might be true, and there might be a time and a place to tell them that. But that will never bring someone to Jesus for the right reasons. God loves me. I love me too. I guess I'll go be friends with God. He thinks I'm great. We're awesome. That's a seer. Jesus will blind that person. God loves you is not the gospel. Your testimony is not the gospel. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've had... Christians share the gospel with me and what they'll say is they'll just talk about all the ways that God has just transformed them and changed their life. And that's great. And there's a time and place for your testimony. Your testimony is a powerful thing. You should know it. You should memorize it. You should learn it. And you should tell it to people. It's a great thing to tell your testimony to people. But it's not the gospel. Your testimony will never bring someone to Christ for the right reason. We don't come to Christ so that our lives will get better. 
We come to Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And that means that we cannot shy away from telling people, you're a sinner. We have to show them, you think you can see, but you're actually blind. You think you're healthy, but you're actually dead. And until they see that, they won't come to Christ for the right reason. The gospel is the good news of what Christ has done for sinners. The gospel is that Jesus took on flesh, lived a perfect life, died in our place, and rose from the dead so that the penalty of our sin can be removed and we can receive new life. The gospel is what Christ accomplished for sinners. And that gospel is accessed by faith. One must confess their sins and then turn to Jesus by faith in order to be forgiven. Again, the gospel is what Jesus did for sinners. And the gospel is received by sinners turning to Christ, specifically not for a better life, not just because it's a tradition, not because I want to try it out, but for the forgiveness of sins. When you preach the gospel, you must preach about a Christ who died for sin. Which means that the people who come to him must come in recognition of their sinful state. They must come to Jesus believing that he alone can save us from our sins. 